All right, so hey there again, it's Suki. And initially I was going to have this episode be about COVID-19 and collective trauma, but I think I'll save that topic for the upcoming episode because the initial articles of interest led me to two other articles that I feel compelled to share first. The first article I came across that inspired this episode is called Intervention Strategies for Addressing Collective Trauma, Healing Communities Ravaged by Racial Strife by Ricardo Ainsley, written in 2013. As the title suggests, this article is about the healing of racial strife within the black community in America, particularly about a specific community in Hempstead, Texas, which is still overcoming what the author calls conflict-laden residues of the Jim Crow era. The second article is inspired by the first, and it's called Transgenerational Transmissions and Chosen Traumas, an Aspect of Large Group Identity by Vamek Vulcan. And it's about what most of us call generational trauma, which is a condition I tried researching in the past, but I could not come up with much of anything. And now that I found this article, I've been able to unearth a lot of similar ones. Another read of interest is called Identification with Parental Trauma in Children of Holocaust Survivors. And I'm going to be reading that very soon, so maybe I'll speak about it in a future episode if it proves especially enriching. But yeah, apparently I just didn't have the right terminology at first to find much of anything. I found this article and many others by searching transgenerational trauma, and it really shows how, uh, how much knowing the terminologies of the field actually helps. Anyways, enough rambling on about that. Another aspect that really pushed me to want to cover these two articles is how both were qualitative in nature. Their findings were more of a reflective approach. It was in no way quantitative, meaning it was not stats heavy. Rather, it was the findings of two well-established psychologists and their reflections on the subject. Of course, they used other findings to back up their assertions, and they are established in their fields as well. But still, there was no stats in the two articles to back up what they said, and at first I felt kind of, eh, about that. You know, there is something about seeing numbers backing up an assertion that makes it more credible. Even though crunching the numbers can make a matter seem significant in finding when generally it's not. But we have gotten so used to the credibility of numbers, so I was reluctant at first. But now I think taking the qualitative approach versus the quantitative quantitative really answered some open-ended questions I had on matters such as racial injustices in America, as well as generational trauma. It was also endearing in a way a quantitative approach can't be. And it's my intention to record this episode in a way that illuminates not how not only endearing the results of the interventions were, but to also answer some questions you might have, might have not known you needed the answers to. And with that, let's get into the first article by Dr. Ainsley about the healing of racial strifes. At the time of this study, the author was intentionally on the lookout for communities carrying trauma that seemed deep and unattained to. One of such communities was in Hempstead, Texas, which until the Civil War held many cotton plantations and had heavily relied on the labor of slaves. And while it has left all that behind, there are still racial wounds. During the year 1995, there was a unique racial tension surrounding HISD, the Hempstead Independent School District, which is not surprising. I mean, the local high school at the time still had a sign that said, colored, above a now bricked over door, signifying the only door where black students were allowed to enter from not so long ago. I have no clue why it was kept up there for so long, but I think it shows how unbothered those of the whites were about any racial weight those of the blacks held or felt. It's crazy that it was just kept there for all the students and any passersby to see, but that isn't the main reason behind the tension. Dr. Ainsley and his team soon found that a great source of the tension was due to how desegregation was handled by the whites within the community. After interviewing so many within Hempstead, it was clear that there was a serious disregard for the black community throughout the desegregation process and into present day. Dr. Ainsley even noted that some of the whites in the community held a note of irritation because they felt 
that so much was done for the black community and that they will never be satisfied. He literally wrote that, for some, there was even a detectable resentment as if blacks had been given so much and yet were still not satisfied. It is also sad to note that it's such people which tend to be super unaware of their privileges. It's their unwillingness to empathize and recognize real present issues in their community that plays into why they sound so cold on the matter of racial issues. Anyways, back to the topic at hand. The school that all the black students went to during the Jim Crow era was called Sam Schwartz, which I should note was named after a Jewish Confederate soldier. And it was this school that held so much value within the community. So much so that it was constantly brought up in almost every interview with those of the black community without any prompt. The school was never in the best state physically. All the students had to walk to school because, you know, they were not allowed on the bus. That was only available for white students. On top of that, their supplies were discarded hand-me-downs that black students would have to walk over to gather from the school meant for the white kids of the community. And yet, Sam Schwartz was greatly loved and valued among the black members of Hempstead. It was in Sam Schwartz school that the black teachers were held at high esteem and respected, and the students' potentials were taken seriously. They felt a sense of belonging that was torn away from them once the school started to desegregate around the United States. Upon the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the school was raised to the ground and all of the accomplishments held within the school's walls, such as trophies and various forms of awards, were taken never to be seen again. To top that off, a school of the same name was eventually built to take in troubled students, and whether or not that was intentional, it hurt just the same. The whole process of desegregation and its disregarding manner was greatly insensitive, and for the whites of the community to simply think they're just making a big deal out of nothing only divided them more. During desegregation, a lot of the black teachers and coaches simply lost their job and were devalued because the white parents of the community did not want a black teacher to te educate their kids. Before desegregation, Sam Schwartz School was a community cornerstone. It used to be where community gatherings were held as black people were not allowed to hold their get-togethers any other place, except maybe their homes and the church. And for it to be raised to the ground with such disregard presented itself as both what is called a chosen trauma and a chosen glory. Before you freak out, the word chosen here does not mean consciously picked as a trauma or a glory. Both terms were coined by Vimic Vulcan, the author of the second article I mentioned from the start. I think Dr. Ainsley defined the terms perfectly, so I'll share his definition. He wrote that chosen traumas are collective shared mental representations of traumatic events that have befallen a group and which remain unresolved or incompletely mourned. He goes on to say that they oftentimes are handed down generationally in conscious and unconscious ways, as psychological tasks to be overcome or emotional wounds to repair. In other words, they are passed down because the weight of the trauma cannot be lifted by one person alone, but by the community. And oftentimes it takes the generations that follow to resolve the issue over time, so that justice is brought to their community after enduring that collective and oftentimes humili humiliating or degrading trauma. In a similar sense, chosen glories are what the community prides itself on and which tends to also pass on generationally. This is a very important find. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard someone claim that a group of people are victimizing themselves. For example, here in America, there are people outside the black community that will constantly blame them for the strifes and struggles they deal with. They will say things like, you're victimizing yourself, or even that you're acting like you are the one out there picking cotton. And whenever generational trauma is mentioned to them, they don't believe that it is a real issue. The fact is, collective or generational trauma manifests within so many communities and will continue to do so. It is just human nature. There are so many studies proving that transgenerational, or chosen trauma as they call it, is not simply a terminology thrown around without backing. A person can't easily step out of it. Their ancestors' traumas, a lot of which were directly experienced through multiple generations, are a wound of theirs as well. 
but I'm glad I found articles to disprove the idea that you can just get over generational trauma. I can't tell you how irritating that notion is. People who suffered World Wars 1 and 2 or the Great Depression did not just get over it. They carried on the remnants and so did their children. Yes, it doesn't manifest in the same manners with each generation, but that does not mean that no healing needs to be done. And generations of slavery are much worse than the Great Depression, especially given how quiet people expected those who were affected by such trauma to be throughout their lives, which only further prolonged the healing process. I mean, I can go on about this topic. To argue that people choose to victimize themselves by simply processing the trauma is absolutely absurd, because that is what it is. They are vocalizing their hurt and the hurt of their community. It is part of the healing process. And that is what Dr. Ainsley helps to prove in his interventions. The first of his interventions were the interviews, which were done with the awareness of how words and being heard by others can be healing. The interviews were so welcomed by the black community that they readily made time for him and opened up their church to give them space to speak. It should also be noted that the interviews were open-ended, as he just wanted to give them space to talk about their experiences. In fact, that is how he came to know of the value and loss of Sam Schwartz School. Dr. Ainsley notes that him and his team were taken aback by how many people filled the church for the set weekends they agreed to meet. He also mentions that it was a very emotional gathering. There were tears and nostalgic songs sung out of impulse. I mean, it was clear to the team that just giving them a space to readily share their experiences and feelings were of great help. It was only after hearing how genuinely attached the black community was to Sam Schwartz that he decided it was best to focus on school desegregation and applied for a grant so that he can film a documentary on the people's experiences. This documentary called Crossover was a second intervention which was greatly intertwined with the first. And as a side note, I did try to look for it, but I couldn't find it on YouTube or for sale. I only was able to watch a five minute clip of it, but I am still looking for it because that clip has me very curious. So fingers crossed I find it. Anyways, the documentary proved beneficial to the community as well. So not only did he interview and give them a chance to share, but they also broadcasted what they shared to the public through the documentary they made. The last and third intervention the team implemented was to set up a public event where people of the Hempstead community gathered and listened. They decided it was best for the black members of Hempstead to speak of the chosen glory the school held for them, and then have Dr. Ainsley speak of on the chosen traumas the community suffered through. Overall, it seemed very successful. By the time he left, the empty field in which Sam Schwartz once stood held a plaque commemorating the school, and there was two trophy cases which he says contained memorabilia describing the school and the lives it held. The interventions also led to the first reunion amongst the alumni of Sam Schwartz since its demise. And also, the sign that said, Colored, was finally painted over. Anyways, that's it for this episode. I know I mentioned that I would go over two articles, but upon editing, I feel like it's best to save the second article for another time. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it as insightful as I did. And until next time, stay curious.